Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the race to the North Pole and who was first to get there, which is not as clear-cut as you might think. In the early years of the 20th century, there was a huge scramble as various people sought to be the first to explore some of the last remaining uncharted areas of the Earth's surface. This led to people racing uh, to be the first to both the poles both the north and the south pole but unlike the race to the south pole which was very clear cut Roald Amundsen beat Robert Falcon Scott in reaching it first there was a lot of controversy about who got to the north pole first Um, there were competing claims fabrications and out and out lies withheld evidence character assassination and slander the story who got to the north pole first is, is actually really it's quite interesting and also quite dramatic uh, quite a few people claim to be the first, and even today there are those who have differing opinions as to who exactly should be counted in the history books as having got there before anyone else. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to have a chat about these claimants, how they said they got there, whether they actually did, uh, what sort of view history has taken of them, and uh, and sort of where we've all kind of settled on the issue today. Although, as I say, there is still some disagreement amongst people and uh, while I have made every effort to represent broad consensus with this episode, uh, others certainly might feel different about my conclusions. So you can, I mean, I guess you can make up your own mind, but I'm just going off the evidence that I came across during my research. Uh, but before we begin, I want to thank some alert listeners who got in touch to suggest chatting about the North Pole, Jacob Zhao uh, and Bart Van, oh dear, Bart Van Gluver, Gluver. I think I got, I feel like I got it right in a previous episode. I should have gone back and listened to it. Anyway, good old Belgian Bart. He's still here after all these years. Good on you, Bart. Thanks for listening. And Jacob as well. I appreciate the email. So good on you, you two, for getting in touch with the suggestion. Uh, but let's get to it here. Let's get stuck in, chat about the race to the North Pole and who ultimately won it. So if we go, here we go. We're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to the turn of the 20th century as, uh, the, as, as interest in reaching the North Pole really, really took off. And as I said, not just the North Pole, South Pole as well, first reached by Roald Amundsen, as I said, uh, and the expedition that he led arriving in December 1911, just a month or so before the tragically doomed expedition led by Robert Falcon Scott, the Terra Nova expedition episode, episode number two. Get across, don't actually, don't get across it. The old episodes are, they're, they're really, pretty bad i didn't know what i was doing anyway that was the story with the south pole pretty clear cut but unlike the south pole right which as you probably know is in the middle of the large ice covered land mass that is antarctica the north pole is in the middle of the large ice covered arctic ocean so before we get stuck into the actual uh, attempts to get there let's talk about 
what that even involves and the differences between trekking across or halfway across Antarctica and trying to get to the, the middle of the Arctic Ocean, the North Pole. The fact that the North Pole is in the middle of the ocean, even though the ocean's frozen over, um, this presents more than a couple of issues when trying to reach it. Principally, the fact that the ice underneath the North Pole moves constantly. It is shifted around by currents and wind and, and whatever else. You, you might sort of think that it's one great big ice shelf that kind of sits placidly in place at the, uh, at the top of the world. But no, if you go online, you can watch diagrams, demonstrations, animations of just how much the Arctic ice shelf not only grows and shrinks every year with the seasons, of course, but also how much it moves about. It's way more than you'd think, right? We all know that the Arctic ice, ice shelf is shrinking, obviously, little by little, thanks to the effect of, effects of climate change. But it also just moves like you wouldn't believe. I really recommend you go and look up. So there are some animations on on um, on, on various websites that show just how – I mean, I was going to say quickly, it's, it's not like it's a, a cheater or a sports car, but they still move it, – it still moves very, very fast. Anyway, the shelf's also massive, I'm, I'm sure you know, even though it is shrinking, it's still huge. Uh, in December 2022, so just about a month ago from recording this, it was 11.92 million square kilometres, nearly 12 million square kilometres. That's bigger than the entire area of Canada. Now, obviously, it's smaller in summer, um, but, I mean, good luck getting to the North Pole in the winter anyway. It's in the middle of a six-month-long night time, so you, obviously you do need to go as things are, are warming up a little bit. Anyway. The bottom line is this. It, it's not as simple as just pointing your compass north and then walking until you can't anymore. Uh, well, first of all, that won't take you to the North Pole, the geographic North Pole. That will take you to the magnetic North Pole, which is different from the geographic or true North Pole. Uh, the magnetic North Pole, it moves around all the time. You can go and see, again, maps online of, of, of where it shifted over the years. Um, and, and while it moves all the time, the geographic North Pole doesn't. It's a human invention. It's not, it's not an actual pole stuck into the ice, in case you were wondering. Um, it's a human invention used for navigation and, and, and map making. The, the magnetic North Pole is a couple of hundred kilometer. Okay. Well, I, mm, that, this doesn't help at all. I was going to say the magnetic North Pole is a couple of hundred kilometers south of the geographic North Pole. Um, but that doesn't give you any useful information whatsoever because literally everything on Earth is south of the geographic North Pole. This, this is quite confusing. It took, me a while, it took me a while to get my head around this, right? But have a listen. If you stand on the North Pole, there is no north and there is also no east or west. It doesn't. If you're standing in the North Pole and you take a step forward in any direction, it doesn't matter where, which way you face, you're walking south, like necessarily. By definition, if you take a step away from the North Pole, you're walking south. But it gets better. When you take that step, let's say you take a step forward of a metre, right? East and west just appear like magic, right? If you step forward by a metre, east and west are now drawn out as a circle with a diameter of two metres centred on the North Pole, goes around the North Pole. So if you if you take a, a step south from the North Pole and then want to walk east, you turn left and just walk in circles around and around the pole. But we still haven't finished because it gets even more confusing. When you, t after you've taken that one meter step, you take a, you're on the North Pole, you take a step south, right? You're one meter south of the North Pole. If you turn around, right? That one meter that you just stepped forward is obviously north, right? But then beyond that meter, past the North, past the North Pole, it's south again. 
This means that you can walk forward in a perfectly straight line and for one meter you will walk north and then without changing direction, you will just suddenly switch to walking south. It is so confusing and also very cool to think about, but it's also not really what we're here to talk about. So sorry, got off on, on a bit of a tangent there. No, what I was trying to say is that walking to the walking to the North Pole isn't as simple as just pointing north, you know, geographic north, and and walking until you can't anymore. Because if you do that, the shifting ice underneath your feet will take you off course. You have to undertake very, very careful and exacting navigation in order to make sure that you stay on course. The ice is moving constantly under your feet. It's 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 pushing and pulling you in different directions. There are no landmarks. It's all just ice. So you've got to keep very very careful track of your of your progress with constant observation and calculation as the ice shifts about underneath you. And back in the 19th century, there's no GPS. There's no satnav, Google Maps, anything like that. You can't use, I mean, not that you could use Google Maps to help you get to the North Pole, but you understand what I'm saying. You had to use traditional navigational techniques like a sextant and that sort of thing. And this is the, this is true as we head into the 20th century. All of these technological marvels that make navigation relatively simple today, they're still decades away. So actually reaching the North Pole back then wasn't as simple as it sounds, and that's what leads to all of the controversies that we're going to get across today, because all the people that claimed they had been to the North Pole had to prove it not with a picture of them standing next to a stripy pole, as I imagine many people imagine it. They had to prove it with hard evidence, navigational data that proved that they'd been there. So... Let's talk about the history of people attempting to reach the North Pole, or not even the North Pole, but just how far north people had got. Lots of people had tried to get further and further north as as, uh, exploration and navigation and charting uh, the unknown parts of the the surface of the Earth continued uh, over the centuries. Um, And and this led to a race known as the Farthest North, a, a series of records of who had been, I mean, as you can guess, farthest north. It goes all the way back to the 16th century with people seeking the fabled northwest passage between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Every time someone sailed a bit further north than someone else, it was recorded and then they were the holders of the holders of the farthest north title until someone else came and took them took it off them. In 1596, Dutch uh, Dutch navigator Willem Barentz made it to a latitude of 79 degrees 49 minutes north. Um, obviously, the North Pole is 90 degrees north, so 79 degrees still still a way off. In 1707, the Dutch whaler Cornelius Giles made it to 81 degrees north. Uh, in 1827, over a century later, British naval officer Sir William Edward Parry reached 82 degrees 45 minutes north. So you can see there were incremental increases in how close people got to the North Pole, but they're still miles off. By the time we get to the 20th century, people are still a long way off from reaching the North Pole and 90 degrees north. And before, again, I'm delaying it, I know, but before we get to the disputed attempts that were claimed as successful, I want to get across two different unsuccessful attempts. I want to share these with you. Uh, Firstly, very quickly, uh, long-term listeners will remember Our old mate, Solomon August Andre, episode 32, Get Across It. In 1897, he attempted to reach the North Pole in a hot air balloon, of all things. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail here because the story is an absolute ripper and it's well worth having a listen to in the full episode that is devoted to it. Uh, But suffice to say, the expedition was not a success. It turns out that attempting to fly to the North Pole in a vehicle that isn't capable of, you know, steering uh, is not a very good idea. 
after barely two days in the air. And, and some of that time was just skimming and bumping across the ice. Uh, the balloon crash landed miles and miles from the pole, miles and miles from, from anywhere and anything really. Um, and I don't want to spoil things too much, but the story does, does not have a particularly happy ending from there. But you can go back and listen to that, as I say, episode 32. Uh, there had been another ill-fated effort a couple of years previous to Andre, this time made by a Norwegian explorer, Fridtjof Nansen. He had a novel idea, a very interesting one. Uh, it became known to history as Nansen's Fram Expedition, named after the vessel that was carried out in the Fram. Uh, and here's the idea in a nutshell. The sea ice that covers the Arctic, it moves, right? Like, we've covered that. So... What if we build a ship that can withstand being frozen in pack ice? Now, this was this required some engineering. Water expands as it freezes, which means that if a, a ship gets stuck in ice in pack ice as it's free as it's freezing, it'll be damaged, right? As the ice expands and damages, squeezes the ship, damages it. But what if we built a ship that could withstand that freezing process and then? freeze it deliberately in the in the pack ice, which will then move about, and then just chill in, in a very literal sense, right? We just chill on the ice because the ice drifts and moves, and with careful planning, you could conceivably just sit on the ship frozen in the ice and let the ice move you to the North Pole, right? Or at least very close to it. And then rather than having to walk all the way there, you're just a little walk away once the ship gets as close as, as it can to the North Pole. Very clever idea, uh, but also one that completely failed to get Nansen to the North Pole. Might be worth its own episode uh, one day. But here's the story very quickly. After setting off from the New Siberian Islands in 1893, Nansen sailed the Fram into pack ice and let it freeze there deliberately. And then he and his crew sp spent, are you ready, three years living on this ship in, like, frozen in ice. Uh, unfortunately, the ice that Fram had been deliberately stuck in only got as far north as 84 degrees, four minutes north. Uh, and Nansen didn't get much further on foot. He did set a new record. Uh, he made it to uh, 86 minutes, 13 point, oh, sorry, 86 degrees, 13.6 minutes north. But, uh, yeah, obviously didn't make it to the North Pole. Still, the trip wasn't a total waste. Nansen used the time, I mean, a lot of time up his sleeve just waiting on the ice there. And he used this time to do a lot of scientific investigation and discovery. We learned a lot about oceanography, meteorology, as well as getting firm evidence that there was no body of land hidden up in the Arctic as there, as there is in the Antarctic. Anyway, eventually after three years, the Fram emerged from the ice on the opposite side of the Arctic from where to where it had entered. Uh, that, I mean, that's how much the ice moves, right? You can freeze a ship in one end and it will eventually get spat out at the other end of the Arctic, uh, of, of the Arctic ice shelf. Uh, and despite not making it to the North Pole, Nansen's expedition was nonetheless, nonetheless very important scientifically, of, of, of course, but also in what it taught people about survival in the incomprehensibly hostile climate of the Arctic. And, as a, and a an interesting side, side note here, believe it or not, this isn't even the trip that the ship Fram is most famous for because Roald Amundsen himself sailed the Fram to the Antarctic in 1910 and launched his journey to the South Pole from that ship. So the Fram certainly got around. Anyway, sorry, we've, we've, we've really gone way off track here. Let's get to the race. Let's get to these claimants here. Move on now to the trips that were at least allegedly, allegedly successful. Most of them have been disproven and, and debunked in the time since then, but it still makes for interesting uh, interesting listening. So let's get across some of these stories here. 
The first bloke to claim that he had made it all the way to the North Pole was an American explorer named Frederick Cook. And he claimed in 1908 he had managed to get there. And I have to say, this bloke did not have the best track record when it came to claims like this. In 1906, he claimed to have led an expedition to the top of Denali, which is the highest mountain in North America, all the way up in Alaska in the US. But he just didn't. His claim has been thoroughly investigated. There is no way that he made it up to the top of Denali based on the records that he made of the trip. Um, and the photograph that he he apparently had taken of himself at the summit was later proven to be taken 30 kilometres away on an outcropping of rock that is now very appropriately known as Fake Peak. So this bloke already has a bit of a pedigree for not telling the truth. But in 1907, he headed back to the Arctic. He'd been before on a couple of expeditions in the uh, in the 1890s, and he announced an attempt to reach the North Pole. He took two Inuit men with him, Apella and Etukishuk, uh, and he departed from the tiny hunting community of Anoatok in Greenland on uh, in, in, in February 1908. 14 months later, the three men returned, and Cook claimed to have made it all the way to the North Pole, arriving on the 21st of April, 1908. Now, why did it take him so long to get back? Well, he said bad weather, poor conditions, open water, all sorts of stuff went wrong for him and his mates. But he did make it to the North Pole, he claimed. And look, he's got a photo, another photo here proving here it is. Go online, you can have a look at it. Two blokes standing next to an igloo with an absolutely massive US flag. And I have to say, surprisingly, People were actually ready to, they were ready to, to accept and support this claim. As news of it spread, Cook was recognized initially as the bloke who made it to the North Pole to begin with. I mean, he took a photo. Look at this, a picture of an igloo and everything. But it wasn't long before this claim was disputed, principally by the, by the bloke that we're going to talk about next, a bloke whose name was Robert Peary. Peary began a campaign to discredit Cook and his claim to have reached the pole, and Cook didn't do himself any favours by failing to release the navigational records of his trip. I said how important these were going to be in situations like this. He said they'd been lost. But then, in 1911, he published partial data from his sextant readings, which were just wrong. And then on top of that, the two Inuit blokes who went with him gave very differing stories as to where the three men had gone together on the journey, so it does look like Cook may have been telling us porky pies about this trip that he took. It's very doubtful indeed that he ever made it to the North Pole. Um, and outside of this, the character assassination that he suffered at the hands of Peary was pretty thorough. Peary did a very good good job of, t- of tearing Cook to shreds. And Cook's reputation was just, just ruined as a result. All the stuff about Denali came out as well, and that was proven to also be a hoax. And then uh, Cook just re- never really came back from it. A decade, a decade later, he got involved in promoting startup oil companies in Texas, and then, because of that, went to jail for fraud. He was sentenced to almost 15 years behind bars. So... Yeah, I I don't know how much we believe Cook. His expedition was almost certainly not the first to arrive at the North Pole. Nor, by broad consensus today, was Robert Peary, very probably the bloke uh, the bloke responsible for tearing Cook to shreds after he made his claim to have been the first. Uh, funnily enough, these two actually had a history together. Remember how I said that Cook had been to the Arctic on a couple of expeditions in the 1890s? Well, one of those expeditions was led by none other than Robert Peary. 
Peary, another American explorer, had, he'd been to the Arctic a bunch. His first expedition was back in 1886, and between then and 1908, constantly going off north, exploring Greenland on dog sleds, sailing around, charting islands in Canada's north. Cannot understand why you would want to do this to yourself, why you would want to voluntarily just be so bloody cold all the time, but that's what he did. And he suffered some pretty bad injuries uh, during this time as well, a couple of broken legs here and there. Although while recovering from one such injury, he recovered amongst an Inuit community And from them, he learned a lot about Far North survival. Peary adopted many Inuit survival techniques he learnt while recovering, building igloos rather than lugging tents around, wearing furs in certain ways to keep warm, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, in 1905, Peary set off in a specially built ship, the SS Roosevelt, which had been outfitted for Arctic exploration, and he sailed north on yet another voyage, this time determined to reach the North Pole. He sailed to the northern part of Ellesmere Island and uh, and then set off with dog sleds across the ice from around 83 degrees north. But then, unfortunately, a big storm came along, uh, caused his expedition party to become separated from one another, and unable to go on alone, Peary turned around, regrouped with everyone back at the ship, but had to give up on plans to reach the pole this time around. Instead, He got some other exploring and navigation and charting done and then headed back to the United States in 1907. But then next year, 1908, he was off again on the SS Roosevelt, his eighth Arctic trip back to Ellesmere Island, set off in February for a trek across the ice to the pole. Big expedition, this one, 26 men, 140 dogs. Uh, Although many of these blokes didn't go the whole way, they were support staff. They peeled off to head back to the ship as the expedition grew, uh, grew close to the pole. And in the end, There were just six people remaining. Peary, his valet, Matthew Henson, and four Inuit men, Egginwa, Siglu, Uta, and Ukwia. And uh, funnily enough, much to Peary's annoyance, it was actually Henson who supposedly made it to the North Pole first while scouting out ahead of the main group. He came back, he, after having taken some navigational readings, said, oh, you blokes, I actually, I I think I found it. His, His quote was, I think I was sitting on top of the world, which was quite poetic and also Probably not true. Anyway, Peary uh, and the expedition took further measurements that confirmed they had indeed reached the North Pole on the 6th or the 7th of April 1909. They've done it. Unbelievable. Robert Peary, well, actually, Matthew Henson, his name isn't on the tin, so bugger him. It's all about Peary. First bloke to get to the pole, except for the part where he wasn't. But whatever, what a legend. Get around him. Fantastic. Peary and his men returned to to the Roosevelt, sailed back to the US where where he was showered in congratulations for his monumental achievement, particularly after rubbishing Cook's claims to have gotten there first. Peary had honours and awards thrown him. He did very, very well for himself in the wake of this expedition and was largely undisputed as the first bloke to have reached the North Pole. He even brought back a photo. Got to have a photo, right? Him and four other blokes there at the pole, flags and everything. But... Quite aside from the fact that if anyone from that expedition had actually made it to the pole, it was Hanson, not Peary, who was there first. It's now thought that none of them, including Peary, made it there at all. Peary never allowed anyone to independently verify his claim. He didn't hand over his navigational data or any other evidence that he had that he had made it, apart from this, you know, this photo, which obviously could have been taken anywhere. It's just ice and snow. Um, the US National Geographic Society confirmed Peary's claim. They said, yes, he's done it, but they had also been sponsors of the journey. So, I mean, yeah, I will, 
I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. But banking on the endorsement of the Geographic Society, uh, Peary was hailed as a hero. Other explorers weren't as convinced as the general public. They found inconsistencies and, and errors in things like the, the very little navigational data that Peary made available. But other stuff like the, the, the speed at which the expedition claimed to have traveled, the fact that Peary wasn't very transparent at all about any of his doings and affairs up there, that, it, it meant that plenty of people doubted his claim even if to the general public it was it was just more or less picked up and, and, and treated like fact. But in more recent times, uh, it is thought that Peary and his expedition didn't reach the pole based on evidence and, and, and new data that has come to light since then. Peary died in 1920, but it wasn't until the 1980s that evidence like Peary's diary was made available to the public. And this evidence did not help his case at all. His diary seems to have been edited with extra bits of paper added to it in the years afterwards. They've been inserted in there. And and even just an analysis of the shadows in the photo suggests that it was taken many kilometres away from the pole. And uh, additionally, as more and more scrutiny has been put on Peary's story, the route that he said that he took, um, inconsistencies in how it was described – a modern understanding of the mechanics and the movement of sea ice, right? Um, all of these things, right, in addition to the navigational areas that have been unco- uh, uncovered, even National Geographic has published an admission that Peary probably fell short by, according to their estimates, 50 to 120 kilometres. So he he probably didn't make it, although to this day there are still those who claim that he did and claim that Hansen was the first person to set foot at the North Pole. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But if it wasn't Cook and it wasn't Peary, right, who was it? As we move on to the next few notable claimants here, we actually take and take to a new mode of transport. We're not walking there anymore. We're flying. While Cook and Peary both claim to have reached the pole over land, well, over ice, I suppose, not land. They claim to have walked or sledged there. Um, our next claimants, however, they went there through the air. In 1926, the the appropriately named Richard E. Bird claimed to be the first person to fly over the North Pole in an aeroplane. Now, he didn't claim to have landed, and um, and so I do suppose it, it, it comes down to what you judge to be reaching the North Pole. Do they actually have to be on the ice shelf, or is just is just flying over the 90 degrees north mark sufficient? If it is, and if Peary didn't make it after all, Bird is the next bloke to claim to have been first to the North Pole. Bird was a U.S. naval officer. He served in the First World War, although he never left North America, didn't see combat. But uh, after the war, Bird became very interested in long-distance aeroplane flight. He was involved in many of the efforts to cross the Atlantic by air. Uh, the first people to do so, obviously, uh, as you may know, uh, the first people to cross the Atlantic nonstop by air were the British aviators, John Alcock and Arthur Brown. They completed a flight from Newfoundland in Canada to Galway in Ireland uh, in June 1919. It wasn't Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh was the first person to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic. 
Uh, but perhaps inspired by Alcock and Brown, Bird attempted to himself undertake a solo transatlantic flight in 1921, six years before Lindbergh managed it. Uh, but his efforts were in vain. They were shut down by the US government, who weren't particularly interested in the trip at this point. Later on, Lindbergh came along at the right time to do it. But Bird's interest in long distance flying, long distance flying, which is just a very humorous sentence to say, um, Bird's interest in long distance flying, it stuck around. And as the US Navy expanded into the skies, the uh, the US Air Force wasn't actually established, it wasn't founded properly until 1947. So uh, it was the Navy who took care of aer- aeroplanes until then. Um, uh, Bird was there. Bird was there as a member of the US Navy, taking to the skies, flying about, having a great time. In uh, in 1925, he commanded an aviation unit that explored Greenland from the air. And then in 1926, alongside another bloke that he'd met through this aviation unit, Floyd Bennett, he decided to have a crack at flying to the North Pole. On the 9th of May 1926, they took off from Svalbard, which is north of mainland Norway, and they flew for just under 16 hours. And 13 minutes of that flight, they said, was spent circling what they calculated to be the North Pole. Now, much like Peary, Bird returned to the US a hero. Promotions, awards, medals, celebrations. What a legend. Look at him go. Get around him. Bird ultimately went on to make a, a solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic in 1927, beat to the punch by Lindbergh by just a year. Unfortunately, too, because, not, I mean, not just because Lindbergh was a eugenicist and Nazi sympathizer, but also because how much better would it have been if the first nonstop solo Atlantic flight had been made by a bloke named Bird? Anyway. Uh, Bert also flew to the South Pole in 1929 with three other blokes, Bert Balkin uh, and Ashley McKinley and Harold June. And again, for this, showered with accolades. Um, when the Second World War broke out, he had to give up exploring to go and fight. But once it was over, zoom, straight back into the Antarctic, uh, exploring with a bunch of US Navy ships. And he ultimately died in 1957. Uh, while he remains one of the most decorated US military officers in history, His claim to have reached the North Pole has not aged so well. He definitely reached the South Pole. That's not up for debate. But as with Cook and Peary, people have examined his claim to have reached the North Pole and found it wanting. Essentially, it boils down to this. His flight times and distances travelled don't add up, right, with the mechanical and logistical reality of the plane he was flying. They exceed the maximum speed of the plane that he was in, basically. And on top of that, right, in 1996, detailed flight records were released to the public that uh, that he and his, uh, his companion Bennett had made while en route. And it was very clear that part of the navigational logs had been rubbed out and overridden. They'd been doctored. They'd been, they'd been manipulated and, and almost forged, really, to make it seem like he and Bennett had made it to the pole. But in reality, it's very unlikely that they actually did. They may have made it about 80% of the way there and then go, well, that's close enough. Turn around. We'll just, we'll just tell everyone that we did. It'll be fine. They may have had engine trouble. There are all sorts of other bits and pieces that came up while I was uh, researching this. I'm, I'm not sure, but. He he probably didn't make it. I mean, the doctored details added after the fact. Actually, I mean, not only evidence that something silly is going on, but the, the doctored details are actually too detailed. They gave more detail than the equipment that they had at the time would actually have offered them. So... Kind of, uh, kind of flew a bit too close to the, well, certainly not too close to the North Pole, a bit too close to the sun in trying to claim that he had that. Anyway, wasn't Bird. Who was it? Well, if we accept that flying over the pole is sufficient to say that you reached it first, 
it was actually someone that we've already mentioned a couple of times in this episode, believe it or not. Can you guess who it is? Do you know who is who has the, at this stage, best claim to have reached the North Pole first? It wasn't Cook. It wasn't Peary. It wasn't they didn't, they didn't go back for a second shot, shot aboard an aeroplane. No, it wasn't an aeroplane at all, in fact. It was a semi-rigid airship built by an Italian bloke named Umberto Nobile, and it was flown over the North Pole on the 12th of May, 1926, under the leadership of Roald Amundsen, the first bloke to reach the South Pole. Yes, he is also credited with leading the first verified expedition to have reached the North Pole as well, for a given value of reached, I suppose. Amundsen obviously had a real thing for absolutely freezing his nuts off, and after making it all the way to the South Pole back in 1911, he decided one pole was not sufficient. After an expedition in 1918 to attempt to sail through the Northeast Passage, Amundsen began to make plans to fly across the North Pole in 1923, and he did make some progress. He made it as far north as 87 degrees 44 minutes north in 1925 in a seaplane, or technically a a flying boat, I think, to keep all the aeroplane and boat nerds happy. But he still he he fell short of the of the North Pole itself. Uh, this trip was it was almost a disaster too. It involved two planes, both of which landed on the ice. Although one got badly damaged as it landed, and Amundsen and his men then had to spend weeks essentially shoveling out an airstrip to take off from on this one plane that was still good to go. They moved five hundred and fifty tons of ice by themselves on a ration of around four hundred grams of food a day. Unbelievable. I mean, a lot of people had given up for dead, but he made it back. And But <laughs> obviously he was a sucker for punishment because he went back again in 1926, although this time in an airship, a dirigible, I think. Oh, no. I mean, I've, I've, kept, I've kept all the aeroplane and boat nerds at bay, but now all the airship nerds are going to be angry with me. Anyway, this airship was built in Italy, as I say, by this bloke, Umberto Nobile, uh, who also piloted it. It was named the Nurge, which is Norwegian for Norway. And Nobile flew it from Italy to Norway, and specifically to Svalbard, where its crew, including Amundsen, assembled aboard it. But interestingly, here's what's really interesting about this part of the story. This all happened at more or less exactly the same time as Bird was making his flight to the North Pole from the same spot in Svalbard. Amundsen, believe it or not, was actually there when Bird returned, making his claim to have made it all the way to the North Pole, and Amundsen was one of the first people to congratulate him for his professed triumph, and I mean, very sporting of him, right? Shaking by the hand, saying, well done, congratulations, mate. Although privately, Amundsen was very discouraged that he'd been beaten to the punch, apparently, by this American. Although, obviously, history has ended up breaking things in his favour, so, you know, just goes to show, never give up. Anyway, bird or no, the Nurge set off from Svalbard, carrying a 16-man crew and a small dog, just for good measure, Set off from Norway across the Arctic to the North Pole, sailing overhead of 90 degrees north on the 12th of May, 1926, just a few days after Bird said that he had done. And as they crossed the North Pole, the expedition dropped three flags from the airship, a Norwegian one for Amundsen, an Italian one for Nobile, and a US one for American adventurer Lincoln Ellsworth, who had helped to fund the trip. But... As the flags dropped, 
a, a quite a serious disagreement broke out on the ship. Some people were very, very cross because Nobile had brought along an Italian flag. He was the one who provided the Italian flag. Makes sense. He's the Italian. But he had made sure that the Italian flag was quite a bit bigger than the other two. And this caused much consternation amongst everyone on board. But what a power move from Nobile. Anyway, they continued across the Arctic uh, to Alaska, where the airship landed. Do they land? I know you tie them up to those poles, but I don't know if they landed. Anyway, they got there safely, and, uh, and, and this time they had actually and factually done it once and for all. How can we be so sure? Well, interestingly enough, because of all the controversy and doubt and disputes over the other blokes that we've talked about today, Amundsen saw how Cook and Peary and Bird were all questioned and cross-examined, how even if many accepted their claims, there were still those who disputed them, right? And so as a result, Amundsen took all sorts of extra precautions to make sure no one would be able to poke holes in his version of events and the story of his journey would you know, be universally accepted. He was so determined to make sure that there was no one who could doubt it. And this wasn't the first time either. Because Amundsen had seen Cook torn to shreds and Peary undergoing scrutiny all the way back in 1909, and so he made sure he created concrete, accurate, indisputable navigational data and evidence as he travelled to the South Pole in 1911 to back up his claim he got there first. And that's why he is so widely and indisputably, indisputably credited as the bloke who got to the South Pole first. He did his homework. He made sure that there was no one who was going to be able to say, oh, well, you know, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you can't prove it. So, same story with going to the North Pole. Exhaustive navigational data was uh, were, was provided. And uh, also, I mean, on top of that, there are, there's 16 crew and the dog uh, aboard, navigators, radio operators, engineers, mechanics, all sorts. There were plenty of witnesses to support the navigational data that was generated by this journey. And and all of them had their story straight because it's it's overwhelmingly likely that they did, in fact, make this trip successfully and, and return to tell the tale. So... Amundsen and his crew, in short, were able to produce incontestable navigational records and flight data, no fabrications, no rubbing stuff out, no edited diary, nothing like that, and they were all on exactly the same page with the story that they told about having made it to the North Pole. So even if you dispute the disputations of the stories of Cook and Peary and Bird, this fact remains. Amundsen's voyage was the first verified one to reach the North Pole, and as a result, the history books record Roald Amundsen as being the first to reach not just the South Pole, but the North Pole too. But at this point, I do want to take a moment to recognise someone else who also shares this achievement, Amundsen's companion Oscar Wisting. Wisting had uh, had been to both the South and the North Pole with Amundsen, but because he wasn't the expedition leader, because, as I say, it was Amundsen's name on the tin, he often gets overlooked. So a big shout, massive ups here to Oscar Wisting, who joined Amundsen in being the first, not just to the South Pole, but the North Pole as well. Good on you, Oscar. Anyway, before we wrap up the show, I want to bring up one final thing. And I don't know if this is just me, but there is something that makes me feel like, I don't know, I don't want to take anything away from Amundsen and certainly don't want to take any, any, anything away from Wisting, but there's just something that makes me feel like this doesn't really count. And maybe that's wrong, I don't know, but just flying over the North Pole, not standing there on foot, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but can I claim to be the first on Mars when it's directly above my position on Earth? Maybe if I do like a handstand or something, I don't know. 
I want, I want to tell you about the first person ever to actually set foot on the North Pole. And you might be surprised how long it took for someone to do this, right? Seems like after Amundsen's flight, interest in the North Pole died out a little bit. Whether you believe Peary or Bird or Amundsen, you, you probably didn't believe Cook. Not many people did. The first person title had already been claimed and not a whole lot of people were interested in, I don't know, being the, being claimed as the second person to have got there, I guess. And also it's bloody cold up there. Why would you want to go in the first place? But when we get to the 1940s, if you'll believe it, it took a long time here. A group of Russian scientists flew to the North Pole in 1948 to conduct research and observations there. Uh, and this was an expedition, scientific expedition, led by a bloke named Alexander Kuznetsov. And not much of a fuss was made about anything for any first or anything like that when these blokes landed in aeroplanes on the ice at the North Pole. And one of these scientists was the first to set foot there on the North Pole itself. Who was it? The short answer, we don't know. I suppose we can credit Kuznetsov. That's what we generally do. Just whoever was leading the expedition tends to get the credit here. He was the expedition leader. I mean, poor old Oscar Wisting. But maybe we could say it was a bloke named Ivan Cherovichny. Uh, he was the pilot who landed the first of the three planes. Maybe it was the other one of the other scientists, unnamed to history, who was just wandering about and happened to stroll over 90 degrees north without, without even realising they did it. We don't know. But since then... People have done all sorts of other things in order to be the first something at the North Pole. Uh, people parachuted onto the North Pole in 1949, travelled there by ski-doo or dog sled in 19, uh, 1968, or on skis in 1979. In 1987, Australian entrepreneur Dick Smith was the first to land at the North Pole in a helicopter. What are you doing, Dicko? Get back home where it's nice and warm, mate. And uh, you might have actually heard how in 2006, James May and the detestable Jeremy Clarkson drove to the North Pole in a modified Toyota Hilux for their uh, their TV show Top Gear. But this isn't true. They drove, they didn't drive to the North Pole. They drove to the location of the 1996 magnetic North Pole, which was almost 1,300 kilometers well, south, obviously, obviously south. Of course it was south. Uh, 1,300 kilometres south of the geographic North Pole. They just drove about northern Canada for a while. So that one definitely doesn't count. But the point remains, the list of firsts for the North Pole grows ever slimmer as more and more people visit it in a range of different ways. So you will have to be very inventive if you want to add your name to the list. Maybe you could, I don't know, skateboard there or something, although I certainly don't recommend it. In any, ca in any case, you have missed your chance to be the first to the North Pole, to win the race to the North Pole once and for all, as that honour, as we've said, belongs to Roald Amundsen, Oscar Wisting and the 14 other blokes and, of course, the little dog that they took with them. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the race to the North Pole. And uh, it, it is, uh, it's a race whose results have varied pretty significantly over the years. This is where we've landed today. If you think I've got something wrong, I do want to hear from you because, uh, again, it, it does seem to be something that 
people still aren't 100% on. I've, I've spoken in terms of broad consensus mostly with this episode. So if you've got a perspective that I didn't share with this episode, please let me know because I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to hear from you anyway, whatever your thoughts are. It's great to get feedback and topic suggestions, ideas, and whatever else is going on, uh, whatever else is on your mind here. So let me know, halfhousehistory.net. The contact form is available there at the website. Please send me through uh, an email. It's always good to hear from listeners. A quick reminder, once again, that the uh, the merch shop does have some new stuff available there, a bunch of personalized items like the sort of key rings and whatever else you find at gift shops, except these ones are all historical themed. You can go and get a, a mug with the name George on it. There's a picture of George Washington or Frederick with Frederick Douglass or Susan. Susan B. Anthony, that sort of thing. And there's something for everyone. You know, you've got a mate called Henry or Joseph or Carl or Elizabeth or Hannibal. No worries. I've got you covered. Head over to the half Fast History Merch Shop. Go to the website. Click the link through. You'll find it and, uh, and grab yourself a bargain there. Uh, but that's about it. That's about it for this week. Been great to have your company. Looking forward to having you again. Oh, no, sorry. Patreon. What am I talking about? Patreon.com slash half History. Support the show if you feel like it. A uh, range of ex- ex- exclusive offers there. I talk about it every week. You know what's going on. Behind the scenes stuff, uh, show notes, uncut episodes, whatever else. Uh, exclusive merch there available too. And a thank you, of course, this week and every week. Thank you to those who are out there spreading the word of half Ass History. Those numbers, oh, popping off, and it's great to see. So I appreciate everyone supporting the show in what is ultimately the most important way, just telling their mates about it, telling their enemies, telling people about whom they feel largely ambivalent. So thank you so much. Anyway, that's that for another episode of half Ass History. Closing things out as ever with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Sloan113, who asks... How does Santa know when Christmas is if the North Pole only has one day and one night all year? <laughs>